Welcome to the reading of the Quad City Times for today, which is Wednesday, um, February 7th. Your readers today are Patty Daniels and Pam Rhodes, and all material heard on Iris is intended solely for the use of people with print disabilities. Here's our first story. Scott County Preparing Budget. Iowa lawmakers' property tax change worked as designed in blunting residential property tax growth, Scott County officials say. Individual homeowners may still see an increase in their property tax bill depending on how much their home increased in value, but the total residential property taxes collected by the county are estimated to decrease by about a tenth of a percent, according to the county estimates presented to the Board of Supervisors on Tuesday. When including industrial and commercial property growth, the overall county's taxable property value increased by 5.1%. Property tax law changes, however, require the county to knock off two percentage points from that. The county is preparing its $136 million budget for the coming fiscal year, which starts July 1st. County staff presented the recommended budget and county financials on Tuesday, which included county staff raises, continuing COVID-19 relief-funded projects, and the first full fiscal year with ambulance service under the county umbrella. County Administrator Mahish Sharma told the supervisors to expect larger budgets for the next few years until the county spends the rest of its American Rescue Plan Act funds. In 2023, the Iowa legislature made changes to the property tax formula to limit the taxes government bodies can collect on the rise in property values. The legislative push came in the wake of eye-popping home assessment increases in 2022. The rollback formula this year changes the share of residential home values that can be taxed from about 54.6% to about 46.34%. In Scott County, a home would have to be assessed at about 17.9% more than the prior year to equal the rollback adjustment. County officials expect to see about a million dollars less revenue than if the property tax system had remained unchanged, said Sharma. Sharma added, however, that the county's industrial and commercial growth kept the budget more stable than other counties with less industrial property. We are part of the urban county and therefore we ha do have commercial and industrial properties that kind of offset the negativity in the residential, but, I, but think about those, uh, how many, um, how many, Think about how many of those 99 counties have the similar kind of mechanism where they have unproportionately lower industrial or commercial growth and property tax law change is really going to suffer much more, Sharma said. The county supervisors made it a priority for county staff to put together a budget without raising the levy rate, Sharma said. Under the proposed budget, the urban levy rate would remain the same at $5.95, and the unincorporated county rate would decrease from $8.78 to $8.73 per $1,000 of taxable value. 
With the residential property tax changes, this means on a $100,000 home in incorporated Scott County, the annual property taxes would go down about $50 under the proposed levy rate and rollback. In unincorporated Scott County, a $100,000 home would pay $75 less in annual property taxes. The proposed county budget re recommended to the supervisors by the county staff would raise county staff members' salaries by 3% plus a cost of living increase of another 3%. The county compensation board, which recommends salary increases for elected officials, recommended the increasing the sheriff's salary by 7% and all other elected county officials by 5%. Under the proposed fiscal 2025, budget, the counties would add two full-time custodial staff and a senior facility maintenance worker. County staff said this is because of the increased space from taking on medic facilities and the increased square footage of the new Youth Justice and Rehabilitation Center set to open this fall. To staff the YJRC specifically, the proposed fiscal 2025 budget would add a full-time senior office assistant and five full-time counselors. The Youth Justice and Rehabilitation Center is set to be finished later this fall, which will put into operation a larger juvenile detention center than the county currently operates. The county is working to spend down its American Rescue Plan funds. So far, it's spent about half of the $33 million Scott County was allocated. The rest is budgeted. The county will also be preparing a plan to spend $6.8 million in opioid settlement funds over the course of the next 17 years, said Scott County Budget Director David Farmer. Capital improvement projects in the county. Capital improve, excuse me. Capital improvement projects the county is eyeing include a 5.6 million dollars in building fund in building and grounds projects, including a cooling tower, a roof repair, a shooting range, a treasurer relocation building out of the continuing governance slash operation space above the YJRC. Number two is $4.1 million in new technology equipment, including auditor poll books, security footage, body cameras, servers, and storage. Number three, $3.69 million in conservation projects, including a Scott County Park pool liner, Westlake Park and Scott County Park shelters and playgrounds, and ARPA-funded trails and sewer projects. Next in line, $1 million in secondary roads, construction, equipment. And lastly, $10 million in secondary roads and construction, including culverts, intersections, resurfacing, and projects in Mount Joy. Appeals Court Denies Trump Immunity, written for us by Eric Tucker and Alana Birkin, excuse me, uh, Durkin, uh, Richer of the Associated Press. A federal appeals panel 
ruled Tuesday that Donald Trump can face trial on charges that he plotted to overturn the results of the 2020 election, sharply rejecting the former president's claims that he is immune from prosecution while setting the stage for additional challenges that could further delay the case. The ruling is significant not only for its stark repudiation of Trump's novel immunity claims, but also because it breathes life back into a landmark prosecution that was effectively frozen for weeks as the court considered the appeal. The one-month gap between the court, uh, I'm sorry, the one-month gap between when the court heard arguments and issued its ruling created uncertainty about the timing of a trial in a packed election year, with the judge overseeing the case last week canceling the initial March 4 date. Trump's team vowed to appeal, which could postpone the case by weeks or months, particularly if the Supreme Court agrees to take it up. The appeals panel, which included two appointees by President Joe Biden and one Republican-appointed judge, gave Trump a week to ask the Supreme Court to get involved. The eventual trial date carries enormous political ramifications, with special counsel Jack Smith's team hoping to prosecute Trump this year and the Republican frontrunner seeking to delay it until after the November election. If Trump were to defeat Biden, he could presumably try to use his position as head of the executive branch to order a new attorney general to dismiss dismiss the federal cases he faces or potentially could seek a pardon for himself. Tuesday's unanimous ruling is the second time since December that judges rule Trump can be prosecuted for actions undertaken while in the White House and in the run-up to the January 6, 2021, uh, when a mob of his supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol. The opinion, which was expected, given the skepticism with which the panel greeted the Trump team's arguments, was unsparing in its repudiation of Trump's novel claim that former presidents enjoy absolute immunity for actions that fall within their official uh, job duties. For the purpose of this criminal case, former President Trump has become citizen Trump with all of the defenses of any other criminal defendant, the court wrote. But any executive immunity that maybe have protected him while he served as president no longer protects him against this prosecution. The judges said the public interest in criminal accountability outweighs the potential risks of chilling presidential action, turning aside the claim that a president has unbounded authority to commit crimes that would prevent the recognition of election results or violate the rights of citizens to vote. We cannot accept that the office of the presidency places its former occupants above the law for all time thereafter, the judges wrote. A Trump spokesman said Tuesday that the former president would appeal the ruling to safeguard the presidency and the Constitution. In a post on Truth Social, after the ruling was issued, Trump insisted that a president must have full immunity in order to properly function and do what has to be done for the good of the country. 
the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit took center stage in the immunity dispute after the Supreme Court in December said it was at least temporarily staying out, rejecting a request from Smith's team to take up the matter quickly and issue a speedy ruling. But the high court could yet decide to act on a Trump appeal. There is no timetable for the Supreme Court to act, but the justices are likely to seek Smith's input before deciding whether to keep the legal rulings against the former president in place. If the court declines to consider the appeal, U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkan would be able to restart the trial proceedings. If, on the other hand, the Supreme Court accedes to Trump's request, any timetable it establishes would determine how much longer the trial might be delayed. If the court grants Trump's request without speeding up the appeals process, Trump would likely have until early May before he would need to file his full appeal. But the justices could set much quicker deadlines for reaching a final decision. The Supreme Court has previously held that presidents are immune from civil liability for official acts, and Trump's lawyers for months argued that protect, that, that protection should be extended to criminal prosecution as well. They said the actions Trump was accused of in his failed bid to cling to power after he lost the 2020 election, including badgering his vice president to re refused to certify the results of the election, all fell within the outer perimeters of a president's official acts. But Smith's team has said that no such immunity exists in the U.S. Constitution or in prior cases, and that, in any event, Trump's actions weren't part of his official duties. The case in Washington is one of four prosecutions Trump faces as he seeks to reclaim the White House. He faces federal charges in Florida that he illegally retained classified documents at his Mar-a-Lago estate, a case that was also brought by Smith and is set for trial in May. He's also charged in the state court in Georgia with scheming to subvert that state's 2020 election and in New York in connection with hush money payments made to porn actor Stormy Daniels. He has denied any wrongdoing. Local elections could become partisan. Candidates for city and school board elections would appear on the ballot with party labels under a bill Iowa Republican lawmakers advanced out of a subcommittee on Tuesday. Supporters said the change would reflect the reality of the traditionally nonpartisan races which have seen increased attention and money from local political parties and statewide partisan organizations in recent years. Specifically, in the last, dec last election, I think we saw a lot of party-affiliated people get involved in a space that we've not seen them get involved in, said Representative Brooke Bowden, Republican from Indianola, who led the subcommittee meeting. And so when you begin down this pathway, we need to have a conversation. Is this the direction we're going? Bowden and Representative Dan Gelbach Republican from Urbandale, voted to advance the bill, House Study Bill 633, out of the subcommittee. Democratic Representative Heather Mattson, Democrat from Ankeny, voted against it. 
The bill, which was proposed by House Education Committee's Chair Schuyler Wheeler of Hull, is now eligible for consideration in the full committee. Candidates for school and city elections currently run without any party label on the ballot. Still, local elections, especially for school boards, have become increasingly partisan in recent years as disagreements over school curriculum, LGBTQ issues, and COVID-19 measures have brought increased attention onto the local boards. Groups like One Iowa, Moms for Liberty, and The Family Leader got involved in school board races last year. Liberal candidates largely won over the Conservatives in that election's contested races. Under the bill, candidates for city and school board offices would be nominated via a primary election, and all other methods of nominating candidates for those offices would be removed. The primary election would be held on the first Tuesday in October before the November election when the city and school offices are up for election. Candidates would need to gather between 10 and 100 signatures from voters, depending on the office, to appear on the primary ballot. <clears throat> the cost of conducting the primary election would be paid by the city or school district. Opponents of the bill said it would inject partisanship into the offices that don't often deal with a political issue. They also said it would be unnecessary cost for the school districts and cities, which often have uncontested races for open seats. Steve Richardson, an Indianola City Council member, told lawmakers during the subcommittee meeting he did not understand what problem the bill was intended to address. I understand in some of the previous elections here recently that there's been some partisan activity from different groups and things like that, he said. But that's happened, frankly, for a long time, and it's nothing new to the process. Lobbyists representing the city and school board groups said smaller districts often have difficulty recruiting candidates to run for office, requiring cities and school districts to conduct and pay for a separate primary election would add to those difficulties, they said. I would prefer that we not have to spend money on an election that could be spent on a teacher instead or a program that is really important for students, said Margaret Buckton, a lobbyist for the Urban Education Network and Rural School Advocates of Iowa. Matson, who voted against the bill, said the issues that local officials deal with are not partisan. At forums for school board candidates in her community, she said candidates talked about specific issues facing students and teachers rather than partisan issues. Whether it is curriculum and standards or making sure that buildings have great security, those are the issues that are dealt with at the school board level, she said. I don't think it helps anybody, or any Iowan for that matter, to unnecessarily enforce partisanship. Some supporters of the bill said it would give voters more information about candidates in local races and allow them to make more informed decisions. They also said they believed it would increase turnout as voters would feel more confident making decisions on whom to support. Research has shown that a lack of party affiliation on the ballot leads to lower turnout in local elections, and incumbents have a larger advantage in nonpartisan elections. Voters are also more likely to skip nonpartisan races on ballots that have a mixture of partisan and nonpartisan races. Andy Conlon, a lobbyist for the conservative think tank Opportunity Solutions Project, 
said it can often be hard to find out where school board candidates stand on issues without seeking out and speaking to them one-on-one. -on -one. I don't have the time to sit down with every school board candidate that's going to be in charge of our district, he said. This is a marker. This is a signal to low-information voters. Hey, generally speaking, this is what they generally believe in. We have one more uh, local type article, and then we'll go on to national stuff in the uh, QC Times. Man gets five years for trying to burn down clinic. Urbana, Illinois, this is from the AP. A 73-year-old Illinois man was sentenced Monday to five years in prison for driving a car into a planned abortion clinic and trying to set the building on fire last year. Philip J. Bunyo of Prophetstown was ordered to also was ordered to serve three years of supervised release and to pay $327,547 in restitutions, prosecutors said in a news release. U.S. District Judge Colin S. Bruce handed down the sentence. Bueno pleaded guilty in September to a federal charge of attempting to use fire to damage a building used in interstate commerce. Bruno admitted that on May 20th, he used his car to breach the front entrance to a commercial building in Danville. He brought several containers filled with gasoline to burn the structure down before it could be used as a reproductive health clinic, prosecutors have said. Danville police officers found Bueno stuck inside the car, which he had backed into the entrance of the building, prosecutors said. During a search of the car, FBI agents found bottles containing gasoline, a hatchet, road flares, old tires, and a pack of matches. Bueno had fortified the trunk of the car with wooden beams, prosecutors said. Longfellow School uh, lockdown. Rock Island police take juvenile into custody. A juvenile was taken into custody Tuesday after being found on the grounds of Rock Island's Longfellow School. Officers from the Rock Island Police Department were called to Longfellow School, 4198 7th Avenue, at 11.30 a.m. Tuesday after a report of a juvenile with a firearm on school grounds. The school's administrators had already placed the school on lockdown. According to a news release, members of the Rock Island Police Department, with the assistance of members of the Rock Island County Sheriff's Department, conducted a room-by-room -room search for the involved juvenile and determined no armed subject was on the property and there was no threat to the students or staff. While officers were on the scene, the juvenile was located in the vicinity and was taken into custody without incident. The news release does not say if the juvenile was in possession of a firearm. The news release also does not say if the juvenile was charged with a crime. The Rock Island Police said the incident remains under investigation and no further information is available at this time. From Nation and World, school shooting, jury finds mother guilty. Teen is serving a life sentence for rampage that left four dead. Written for us by Ed White and Corey Williams. From the Associated Press, Pontiac, Michigan. A Michigan jury convicted a school shooter's mother of involuntarily involuntary manslaughter Tuesday in the killings of four students in 2021. 
Prosecutors say Jennifer Crumley, 45, had a duty under state law to prevent her son, who was 15 at the time, from harming others. She was accused of failing to secure a gun and ammunition at home and failing to get help to support Ethan Crumley's mental health. The four guilty verdicts, one for each student slain at Oxford High School, were returned after about 11 hours of deliberation. Jennifer and James Crumley were the first parents in the U.S. to be charged in a mass school shooting committed by their child. James Crumley faces trial in March. The cries have been heard, and I feel this verdict is going to echo throughout every household in the country. Victim Justin Schilling's father, Craig Schilling, said outside the courtroom. I feel this necessary, and I'm happy with the verdict. It's still a sad situation to be in. It's got to stop. It's an accountability, and this is what we've been asking for a long time now, Schilling said. On the morning of November 30th, 2021, school staff members were concerned about a violent drawing of a gun, bullet, and wounded man, um, accompanied by desperate phrases on Ethan Crumley's math assignment. His parents were called to the school for a meeting, but they didn't take the boy home. A few hours later, Ethan Crumley pulled a handgun from his backpack and shot 10 students and a teacher. No one had checked the backpack. The gun was the big, that was the Sig Sauer 9mm his father purchased with him just four days earlier. Jennifer Crumley took her son to a shooting range that same weekend. Outside the courthouse, the jury forewoman, who declined to give her name, said jurors were influenced by evidence that Jennifer Crumley was the last adult to possess the gun. That really hammered it home, she told reporters. Indeed, the jury saw images of Jennifer Crumley leaving the shooting range with a gun in a box. He literally drew a picture of what he was going to do, prosecutor Karen McDonald said. It says, help me. Jennifer Crumley will get credit for about two and a half years in the county jail when she returns to court for sentencing on April 9th. And some news from California. L.A. area sees at least 475 mudslides due to storm. Los Angeles, one of the wettest storms in Southern California history, unleashed at least 475 mudslides in the Los Angeles area after dumping more than half the amount of rainfall the city typically gets in a season in just two days. And officials warned Tuesday the threat was not over yet. The storm continued to pose hazards, with the National Weather Service issuing a rare tornado warning for San Diego County. The warning later was canceled, though the storm briefly turned some San Diego streets into rivers. Officials expressed relief that the storm hadn't yet killed anyone or caused a major catastrophe in Los Angeles, though seven deaths were reported elsewhere, including one early Tuesday at the California-Mexico border of someone trying to enter the U.S., according to U.S. Customs and Border Protection. And uh, briefly... Artificial intelligence. Meta said Tuesday that users in coming months will see labels on AI-generated images that appear on Facebook and Instagram, part of a broader tech industry initiative. 
taxes. U.S. tax revenues are expected to rise by as much as $561 billion from 2024 to 2034, thanks to stepped-up enforcement made possible with funds from the Inflation Reduction Act, according to an analysis released Tuesday by the Treasury Department and the IRS. And primary, authorities issued cease and desist orders Tuesday against two Texas companies believe connected to robocalls that used artificial intelligence to mimic President Joe Biden's voice and discourage people from voting in New Hampshire's primary last month. Turkey. Two people attacked Turkey's largest courthouse before being shot dead Tuesday in an exchange of fire that also left one other person dead and five wounded. Authorities allege the assailants were part of an extremist organization. And in Chile, the death toll from wildfires that ravaged central Chile for several days increased to 131 on Tuesday, and more than 300 people were still missing as the blazes appeared to be burning themselves out. 2020 election, the conservative group Project Veritas and its former leader, Alleged claims of ballot mishandling in 2020 were untrue as a lawsuit filed against them by a Pennsylvania postmaster was settled on Monday. And do we have another another short one? We don't. Bolts missing from Boeing plane panel. Bolts that helped secure a panel to a Boeing 737 MAX 9 were missing before the panel blew off in the Alaska Airlines plane during a January 5th flight. The National Transportation Safety Board issued a preliminary report Tuesday. It included a photo from Boeing, which worked on the panel, calling a, called a door plug. In the photo, three of the four bolts that prevent the panel from moving upward are missing. The location of the fourth bolt is obscured. Investigators said lack of certain damage around the panel indicates all four bolts were missing before the plane took off from Portland, Oregon. Pilots were forced to make an emergency landing. Turning now to the obituary section of the uh, paper, the Quad City Times, country singer Toby Keith dies at 62. Toby Keith, a hit country crafter of pro-American anthems who riled up critics and was loved by millions of fans, has died. He was 62. The should-have-been-a-cowboy singer-songwriter who had stomach cancer, died peacefully Monday surrounded by his family, according to a statement posted on the Country Singers website. He fought his fight with grace and courage, the statement said. He announced with his cancer diagnosis in 2022. The six-foot-four-inch singer broke out in the country boom years in the 1990s. Over his career, he publicly clashed with other celebrities and journalists and often pushed back against record executives who wanted to smooth his rough edges. He was known for his overt patriotism on post-9-11 songs like Courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue and boisterous barroom tunes like I Love This Bar and Red Solo Cup. Uh, he had a powerful, booming voice, a tongue-in-cheek sense of humor, and range that carried love songs as well as drinking songs. Among his 20 number one Billboard hits were How Do You Like Me Now, As Good As I Once Was, 
My List, and Beer for My Horses, a duet with Willie Nelson. His influences were other working-class songwriters like Merle Haggard, and he tallied more than 60 singles on the Hot Country chart over his career. Throughout the cancer treatments, Keith continued to perform most recently playing in Las Vegas in December. He also performed on the People's Choice Country Awards in 2023 as he sang his song, Don't Let That Old Man In. Cancer is a roller coaster, he told KWTV during an interview aired last month. You just sit here and wait on it to go away. It might never go away. The Pending Donald A. Hennings Sr., 84, of Rochester, passed away Sunday, February 4th, at Mercy Hospital, Iowa City. Arrangements are pending with Fry Funeral Home in Tipton. Susan L. Bradley, 79, <coughs> excuse me, of Taylor Ridge, Illinois, passed away Monday, February 5th, um, at Celebrate Nursing of Moline. Arrangements are pending at Wheaton, Whelan, Presley, Funeral Home, and Crematory in Milan. David W. Rose, 68, of Rock Island, passed away Monday, February 5th, at UP Trinity, Rock Island. Arrangements pending at Rafferty Funeral Home in Moline. Jeanette Myers, 84, formerly of Silvis, Illinois, passed away Sunday, February 4th, at Bickford of Davenport. Arrangements are pending at the Van Ho Funeral Home, East Moline. Lowell D. Gerls, 85, of DeWitt, formerly of Donahue, passed away Monday, February 5th, at Genesis East Medical Center, Davenport. Arrangements are pending at Bentley Funeral Home in Durant. Jody Baker, 56, of Rock Island, passed away Friday, February 2nd, at UP Trinity, Rock Island. Arrangements are pending at Rafferty Funeral Home in Moline. James K. Darren, 70, of Moline, passed away Monday, February 5th, at Unity Point Health, Trinity, Rock Island. Cremation will be directed by Cremation Society of the Quad Cities. And... Donna Jean Earhart, March 19, 1931 to February 5th. Donna Jean Earhart, I'm sorry, there's not an L in there. Donna Jean Earhart, 92, of Moline, passed away February 5th at Hope Creek Nursing and Rehabilitation Center. Graveside services will be held at 2 p.m. on Friday, February 9th at Moline Memorial Park Mausoleum. Cremation rites have been accorded. Inurement will be at Moline Memorial Park. Donna was born on March 19, 1931, in Kewanee, Illinois, the daughter of Thecla Francis Dinker, Dunker and Mark Harden. She married Fred E. Earhart on November 12, 1950, in Davenport. He preceded her in death on October 22, 2006, Donna worked at the Rock Island Arsenal as a logistic management specialist. Prior, Donna and Fred owned Central Building Supply in Moline. Donna's favorite pastime was sewing. Survivors include her children Jean Marinowski of Scottsdale, Nancy Earhart of Moline, and James Earhart of Scottsdale. Cousins 
uh, from uh, Robert and Susan Noth of Bettendorf and Nick Jeffers of Tucson. She was preceded in death by her parents, Thecla and Mark, husband Fred, son Thomas, brother Frank Hardin. Memorials may be shared online by visiting esterdahl.com. Dana Jo Smith, known affectionately as Dana Jo, to all who had the pleasure of crossing her path, embarked her final adventure on January 31st. Born in the humble beginnings of Iowa City, Iowa, on December, sep, excuse me, September 18, 1941, to the late William Edward Roberts and Cynthia Jo Hoogland Roberts, Dana was a force of nature, a hurricane in a cowgirl boots, if you will. Her untimely departure was due to an epic last showdown as the notorious junkyard dog, a.k.a. Dana Joe, and she passed away in Buffalo, Iowa, leaving a legacy as enduring as her spirit. A memorial celebration of life will be held at the Buffalo Community Center on Friday, February 9th, from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. There will be some food provided. If you want to bring your favorite sweet treat to share, you are more than welcome. Family and friends are invited to share memories and express condolences in her memory wall at msvcremation.com. Funeral services for Susan E. Martin, 69, of Bettendorf, will be at 11 a.m. on Saturday at McGinnis Chambers Funeral Home, Bettendorf. Burial will follow at Davenport Memorial Park Cemetery. Family will greet friends on Saturday from 10 a.m. to service time at the funeral home. Susie, Susan Susie Elizabeth Ryman was born on February 4, 1955, to Scott County, in Scott County, to Francis and Elva Poole Ryman. She married Danny Martin on September 9th of 2000. Susie died on February 5th at the Clarissa Cook Hospice House. She passed peacefully and, sur and surrounded by her family. Susie is survived by her husband, Danny, daughter, Mindy, Krug, son, Frank Waters, stepson, Shannon Martin, stepdaughter, Sean Martin, grandchildren, Peyton, Hadley, Reese, Chase, and Landon, nieces, Becky, Purnell, and Catherine Thornton. Susie was preceded in death by her parents, her brother, Robert, Barbie Ryman. Memorials will be made, may be made to K.C. Paws, in Moline. Stephen E. Jurgens, 68, of Long Grove, passed away Saturday, February 3rd, at his residence surrounded by his family. Funeral services will be held at 11.30 a.m. on Friday, February 9th, at Coram Deo Bible Church, Davenport. Visitation will be from 9 a.m. until the time of service at the church. A private family burial service will be at Summit Cemetery in Davenport. Memorials may be directed to the McCausland Fire Department. Chambers Funeral Home, Eldridge, is assisting the family with arrangements. Steve was born on October 23, 1955, in Davenport, the son of Elmer and Ruth Jurgens. He graduated from North Scott High School in 1973. Those, excuse me, the family would like to thank the health care workers at the Mayo Clinic, University of Iowa hospitals and clinics, and hospice workers for their compassionate care and support throughout Steve's courageous battle with lung cancer. 
Online condolences may be shared with the family at www.mcginnischambers.com. Donald L. Dage, 83, of Bettendorf, passed away on Thursday, February 1st at his home. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. on Friday, February 9th at Weirts, excuse me, it's W-E-E-R-T-S, Weirts Funeral Home. Memorials may be left to the Scott County Humane Society or St. Jude Christian's Hospital. Online condolences may be expressed at www.weetssfh.com. Survivors include his children, um, three grandchildren, his sister, and uh, his brothers. He was preceded in death by his parents, wife, Jean, and granddaughter, Bethany Dage. Thank you, Pam. It's time for some opinions. We don't have time for a bunch of them, but um, I'm going to read some letters to the editor. Services will be reduced under Governor's AEA plan. I want to believe that Governor Reynolds means well, but the proposed dismantling of Iowa's area education agencies and putting them under the direct control of the direct the director of Iowa Department of Education will cause essential services to be reduced and possibly eliminated for students and families, especially in Iowa's rural schools. AEAs were designed and still operate under a cooperative model. The pooled resources help all schools receive supports in critical areas, including special education, media services, and education support services. Ask a family whose child receives these services or an educator about the impact of the proposed change. It's not going to be good. AEAs have areas that can be improved, but we need to take a more thoughtful and measured approach. Note, I am a former superintendent, and I serve as an unpaid volunteer on the board of directors of the Mississippi Bend AEA, representing Andrew, Bellevue, Calamus-Wheatland, Central DeWitt, De- uh, Delwood, Easton Valley, and Maquoketa. Written for us by Kim Huckstadt of Maquoketa. Davenport officials must find suitable home for junior theater. Davenport Junior Theater is a great cultural asset for the entire Quad Cities region, not just Davenport. Our grandson, who is on the autism spectrum, participated in theater on the spectrum. The skilled and caring teachers helped him gain a a sense of belonging and accomplishment that is often difficult for children like him. He continued to participate in DIT and other programs, and his experience was always positive. Thousands of other local children have benefited from their own participation. We encourage Davenport officials to do everything they can do to find a suitable home for this unique local treasure. As this newspaper wrote in an editorial on January 28th, The Davenport Junior Theater Program has had a long and successful run in Davenport, and we want to see that continue. It appears to to the city is committed to doing just that, pledging to find a better home to ensure the program continues. That is a must. Written for us by Gary and Linda Rao of Rock Island. Address Drug Corporation's Greed. Protect Seniors. Iowans know seniors deserve to age with dignity, 
and recent reductions in prescription drug prices for 2024 are a commendable step towards this goal. The Biden administration's initiatives promise substantial relief for Medicare beneficiaries, ensuring that no one has to make heartbreaking choices between life-saving medications and paying essential bills. The capped monthly cost of $35 for insulin is a lifeline for seniors guaranteeing access to crucial medication without bur the burden of exorbitant expense. The provision for free vaccines under Part D removes financial barriers for seniors, enhancing accessibility. The elimination of coinsurance and co-payments during the catastrophic coverage phase caps out-of-pocket expenses at $3,250 this year, safeguarding both the health and financial well-being of senior citizens. The expanded coverage of the Part D low-income subsidy program ensures that those with incomes below 150% of the federal poverty level pay no more than $4.50 for general drugs and $11.20 for brand-name drugs. The reduction of the annual Part D out-of-pocket cap to $2,000 in 2025 signals a continued commitment to affordability for seniors. Thanks to Congressional Democrats and President Biden, the Inflation Reduction Act is delivering relief from high drug prices for Iowa seniors. While Representative Miller Meeks voted against this legislation, its impact is undeniable as it compels drug companies into negotiations, leading to lower prices. Drug companies negotiate with private insurers, other governmental agencies, and foreign governments. Our seniors deserve similar savings. We must address the drugs corporation's greed and protect the financial well-being of our seniors. And this article is written by Kay Pence, and she is from Eldridge. We have time for one article in the sports section. Wildcats nip sabers in Thriller. North claims share of MAC Crown, written for us by Tom Johnson. There's a photograph above the article. Two uh, young ladies, uh, they're, they're, I think, tussling over a basketball. DeWitt. It took overtime and some special efforts against a very spunky Central Duet team, but the Davenport North girls basketball team accomplished its mission Tuesday evening. Divine Bourrage and Kyra Taylor stepped up with huge double-doubles and Damia Clark splashed home a game-turning three-pointer in overtime to lead the Wildcats to a scintillating 69-62 victory over hosting Central Duet in the Sabres' den. The victory was North's 15th straight of the season and allowed the Wildcats to secure no worse than a share of the Mississippi Athletic Conference crown as they moved to 15-0 in the league. It is North's first title since the 2016-17 season. It was irritating and a little frustrating, said Taylor, of the high-intensity contest, but in the end, it was amazing. That would be a great way to describe the entire contest before a loud crowd in a championship setting. The Sabres knew coming in that in that they had a great chance to knock off the league leaders who had only seven varsity players and were without the injured Journey Houston, who is done for the season and awaiting surgery on her injured knee. I am very pleased with how we played, said Sabre coach Ron O'Brien after his Class 4A 10th ranked squad battled to finish against Class 5A's second ranked 
wildcats. I don't complain one bit. Central DeWitt, 11-4-14-3, MAC, was playing with an eye on a potential title share if a number of things fell their way in the next week, and Lauren Walker was ready to carry the Sabres as far as she could. In the first half alone, she erupted for 20 points with the help of a 6-of-9 shooting from three-point range. She finished with a game-high 34 points. Lauren Walker, when she gets going, at halftime on the way to the locker room, I gave her a high five, said North coach Paul Rucker. I told her that was a shooting display. When someone goes off and knocks down shots, you have to give credit where credit is due. I'm giving her credit. She had a great shooting night. But the North defense stopped up in the second half stepped up in the second half and made it especially difficult for the Sabres to find the range in their own gym. After hitting an eight of three pointers, I'm sorry, after hitting eight of 15 three-pointers in the opening 16 minutes, the hosts were just four for 13 in the final 20 minutes, including overtime, as North committed to pounding the ball in the paint. And a little bit more of this. We just stepped up and did what we had to do, said Rucker of his team's in-your-face man-to-man defense that made things problematic for the hosts. Barrage finished with a remarkable 26 points and 21 rebounds, while Taylor added 24 points and 11 rebounds. The Wildcats, 18-2, MAC, were their own worst enemy late in the contest, leading 44-39. Heading into the final stanza, the teams battled early in the frame, with North leading 52-45 after Taylor hit a pair of free throws with 3.55 left in regulation. But after that, things got tight as the Wildcats, who battled foul trouble, missed five of seven free throw attempts, keeping the Sabres in the game. That proved costly as Central DeWitt's Kenley Burt, seven points, switched a triple from the right corner in front of her excited bench with 32 seconds left in regulation that tied the game at 56, which is where it stood at the end of regulation after a couple of turnovers each way. Walker then gave the Sabres their first lead since midway through the second quarter when she opened the overtime with a bucket. However, the Wildcats settled down and got two free throws from Micaiah Farnham, 13 points, and Clark's three-pointer, North's only bomb of the contest, as Taylor poured in six points with two buckets and two charity tosses in a 9-2 run that decided the game. Kyra Taylor brought it tonight at both ends, said Brucker, praising all seven of his kids who played. Barrage capped off North's 13-6 overtime spree with a fast-break bucket against Central DeWitt's press with 15 seconds left. Here are just a few short stories from The Wire. Baseball, Astros reach deal with Altuve. Jose Altuve and the Houston Astros agreed to a $125 million five-year contract that covers 2025 to 2029. A three-time batting champion at the 2017 American League MVP, the 33-year-old uh, Altuve hit three point, three, uh, point, 311 excuse me, 311 with 15 homers, 51 RBIs, and 14 stolen bases in 90 games last year. 
He broke his left thumb when hit by a pitch from Daniel Bard while playing for Venezuela in the World Baseball Classic and didn't make his season debut until May 19th. Altuve helped the Astros win their first two World Series titles in 2017 and 2022. He was voted the AP Male Athlete of the Year in 2017. Players win five arbitration cases. Players swept five salary arbitration decisions against major league teams on Tuesday when Baltimore Orioles outfielders Austin Hayes and pitcher Jacob Webb won their cases, along with the Los Angeles outfielder Taylor Ward, Houston Astros utility man Mauricio Dubon, Dubon, Dubon and New York Mets reliever Phil Bickford. The unusual sweep gave players a 5-2 advantage, with 11 cases still pending. Suit aimed at Vegas Stadium. A teachers' union political group has filed a second legal effort to block taxpayer funds from going to a baseball stadium to relocate the Oakland Athletics to the Las Vegas Strip. The union is also appealing to the state Supreme Court to allow a referendum on the ballot for voters to decide the stadium tax money question. Gymnastics, Douglas to return to competition. Gabby Douglas will return to competition for the first time in nearly eight years, February 24th, at the Winter Cup in Louisville, Kentucky. Douglas won the Olympic all-around gymnast title at the London Olympics in 2012. The 28-year-old Douglas hasn't competed since helping the U.S. team win gold at the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio de Janeiro. WNBA, Sky Trade Copper to Mercury. The Phoenix Mercury acquired 2021 Finals MVP Kali Copper from the Chicago Sky for four draft picks, including the number three choice this year. Chicago will also receive Michaela Onyewer and Brianna Turner from the Mercury. Copper had agreed to a two-year extension with Chicago last September and solidified herself as the centerpiece of the organization. She averaged 12 points, 3.6 rebounds, and 1.4 assists during her seven seasons with the Sky. She was stellar in the past three seasons, including during Sky's championship run in 2021, when she averaged 17.7 points and 5.9 rebounds on the way to earning finals MVP. Television, networks team up for streaming platform. ESPN, Fox, and Warner Brothers Discovery announced plans on Tuesday to launch a sports streaming platform in the fall that will include offerings from at least 15 networks and all four major professional sport leagues. The three companies will each share one-third ownership in the joint venture. A name for the service and pricing will be announced at a later date. Basketball. Rubio joining Barcelona team. Barcelona, Spain. Ricky Rubio plans to continue playing career with Barcelona. He has signed a short-term contract a month after he announced that his 12-year-old NBA career was over. The 33-year-old Rubio has stepped away from playing to address mental health issues. Barcelona said the guard would return when he is ready. Rubio previously played two seasons at Barcelona before switching to the NBA.
That brings us to the end of the Quad City Times for today. I'm Patty Danielson. My partner at the microphone has been Pam Rhodes. You can listen to Iowa's programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Thank you for listening to Iris, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. <laughs>